Thank you, friends. Um, I'm so glad to see you. I want to talk about the end of the world. What do you think? Just dive right in there. Forget about easing in. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about stuff that has kept me up late at night all of my life. There are a lot of you here today, by the way. It's really good to see all of you. Um, yeah, these things have been keeping me up late at night most of my life as a kid, as an adult. Um, this may feel like a lot for one message. It does for me, but um, I don't know. I just felt like this is where I was supposed to go. It's interesting. People will ask me now that I mostly preach in the lectionary because y'all know how I am. It's like I preach in the lectionary except when I decide not to. <laughs> and But I do try to mostly preach in the lectionary, and people will ask me sometimes, me being the hillbilly Pentecostal that I am, do you not feel like it constricts like the movement of the Spirit to have a signed text? And Far from it. It's really interesting to me how the Lord does these things, or I'd like to think that he does. The last few times I've preached here, I found myself in talking about other things, talking about the book of Revelation, kind of unintentionally. It's just kind of been where my head and and heart have been. And when I found uh, out about a week ago what the texts were for this week and climaxing with Revelation 21, I'm like, oh, I think I have to go there. I think I have to go in the end of the world. I think I have to go to the the big stuff. So that's where we're headed. Let's let's pray, and then we'll dive right into some texts. Spirit of God, I pray not only today for the grace to listen and to hear, but I pray that you would show us these things. Show us. Reveal yourself to us. Reveal your heart to us. Reveal your word to us. Make known to us the mysteries of God as we submit ourselves now, as we always do, under the authority of your word. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said... Amen. Let's look right at some scripture. I'm actually going to want us to look briefly at three of the lectionary texts for today, or at least portions of them that I love. Psalm 24, 1 being the first one. In fact, could you read this together with me? The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. I still tend to think of this in the King James, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament And it gives us a glimpse into the Hebrew understanding of the world, of the cosmos, in a way that I think is is tremendously important for a message like this, uh, that we remember that God is the one who creates all things. He's the one who sustains all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so God is, is concerned about this material world, especially in a culture where much of our spirituality is, is not unlike the Gnostic uh, kind of mentality that Paul and the other epistle writers were trying to combat. There's a division between soul and body. There's a division between the spiritual world and the physical world. And it can often, we get these messages that what it's really about is the soul being saved or enlightened, somehow detached from the reality and the groundedness of created beings and created things. God's concerned about the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And then from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, I'll read these to you. And one of, to me, one of the most beautiful passages in Isaiah, uh, describing a time that is not yet upon us in words that just ache with, with beauty. Beginning Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Goodness. And then finally, Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6, which you will see has, uh, John here in the apocalypse, has very intentional overtures from that very same Isaiah text. This is the climax of the Christian story. This is where it's all going. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this language will become more significant in a moment. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea in Hebrew mythology, always representative of chaos, of, uh, of evil, of, of mystery. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. I don't want to insult your intelligence, but this is so important for today. Um, it's going to be all about two basic directions, up and down. So I just would like to make sure we get this part clear. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, how does it come? From what direction does it come? Down. Are we all clear on that point? Whatever eschatological views we may differ on between us, perhaps we could concede that Revelation 21 describes the time that comes where the city of God comes down. Okay. As a heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, echoing those words of Isaiah. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Would you say amen to the reading of God's word? Those are some beautiful texts. And again, there's a lot I'd like to say. I don't want to oversimplify, but this seemed like the right place to start. I have been thinking about the end of the world all of my life. Makes me think of a great U2 lyric. Ate the bread, drank the wine, everybody having a good time, except you, you're still talking about the end of the world. That has been my life, is thinking about the end of the world. Um, it started for me when I was eight years old, a pastor's son, a uh, rural church in North Carolina, and uh, on a Wednesday night, we watched a film, I'm very curious as to how many of you know it, a 70s B-movie classic called A Thief in the Night. Raise your hand if you have seen A Thief in the Night. Shocks me every time. I can't believe it. How many people have seen A Thief in the Night? The rest of y'all are missing out <laughs> on this cinematic masterpiece. Um, this was a movie where the central premise is young girl, young teenager comes home, blonde-headed girl. And as I recall, I think her mom's like green beans or something. We're still cooking on the stove. Her dad's electric razor is still running. 
They're not home. She calls out for them. It turns out her parents have been raptured. They've been snatched up, caught away, and she's left now to wander the earth to fight the forces of the Antichrist for her and her friends to try to resist taking the mark of the beast because if you get the mark of the beast, of course, your head will be lobbed up at the guillotine and you have like a bloody, wonderful entertainment for eight-year-olds, by the way. This is a great, great way to get children to follow Jesus. Lots of good fruit come from this kind of tactic. Would, would encourage, there's nothing remotely abusive about that. No, 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 no. And I'm not bitter. No, not even a little bit that from eight years forward that I was captivated by nightmares. I mean, literally, I'm not just, I'm not saying this. I became obsessed with these ideas, consumed, which, by the way, is the logical thing to do if that's what you think is going to happen. I, I was consumed. I had nightmares. I mean, I literally remember having to be taken from school because, at times because, like, the panic attacks were so severe, being concerned about rapture if, and thinking I'm going to have a wrong thought. I remember learning to play basketball and not hardly being able to shoot free throws because I couldn't concentrate enough because I'm always thinking from the last shot to this one, have I thought something that might make me ineligible for the rapture? Like I was consumed. I know, I know it's not rational or normal, but I'm not a normal person. Clearly, you know that part already. Consumed my life. I remember one day when um, we were in a two-story house at the time and my mom apparently was upstairs in the bathroom. I didn't know that. I called for her. She didn't answer. I kept calling. She didn't answer. Sure, I was left behind. Some of you have had this experience. I had different strategies. Sometimes I had like a call list, actually. They were, I think they were maybe numbered of people who I knew, like, if I, if I thought I'd been left behind, who I knew were Christians. So if I, like, you know, first call my grandparents. So if they're here, then I know I'm okay, et cetera. That time I didn't call. Um, I just got terrified, and I ran across the street to see if the neighbors were home. Old couple, really sweet people. And I'm in tears, and I'm knocking on their door because I think they've been left behind. The old lady does come out, but then all of a sudden I realized, like, this is not encouraging. This just means they weren't real Christians. Why? <laughs> so this sweet elderly couple never knew Jesus. Like, what it was? So they're left behind with me. The Antichrist will take off all of our heads together. Why is this good news? And I'm crying. And about that time, my mom came out the front door, Jonathan. Oh, then I just start bawling. And it's like, where, 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 what happened? Why did you? I just, it was, it was horrible. And so these things really dominated my consciousness for, again, uh, most, most of my life. And so much so, you can't make this up, and why would you? I had these nightmares well into my 20s. I remember being 25 and a youth pastor and waking myself up. I'll occasionally walk in my sleep. I'm telling way too much today. A lot of people are psychoanalyzing me, I see. It's like, oh, that's what's wrong with him. That's, this is where it all started. These are the issues he's working out now. That's true. Um, when I was 20, that is very true. I remember 25, waking myself up in the living room in our little apartment, screaming, having one of my rapture dreams. I was in my boxers. I'd opened the front door. I think about to go see if any other folks were home. Because it was like that vivid. Like I would wake myself up from these night terrors. So this has dominated much of my life. I've spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Um, suffice it to say, some of my views have shifted somewhat since those days. But for me, at the risk of oversimplification, it comes down to really one fairly simple idea, right? Is that all of the theology that I got early on about the end of days was all about me going up. It was all about being caught up, snatched away. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. It was all about me going up. One of the greatest shifts in my life theologically, and it continues to inform every move I make. I don't think I probably preach a sermon where I don't refer to one of these ideas in some way because it's that foundational to me, is when I made the shift from an emphasis on me going up 
to the kingdom of God coming down, the new city going down. Whether or not the weight lands on the up or the down has tremendous implications for how we live our real lives. I really believe that. It matters in real life. Um, I'll say more about that kind of theology in a bit. The whole like uh, distant thunder, thief in the night kind of scene all starts from a theological system that really comes to be influential in the middle of the 1800s. John Nelson Darby was the founder of this kind of thought. It's a certain kind of dispensationalism that's very rigid in terms of reading the Bible for kind of graphs and charts about the end of the age. Uh, it caught on, especially with a man named Schofield, who was not a theologian. He was not trained as a scholar, but he was a lawyer, and he read the Bible as a lawyer would, looking for neat charts and graphs and all that. So he uh, composed a thing called the Schofield Study Bible. Perhaps you've heard of this. Caught on, became very influential, um, that has this kind of, of end times thinking. Now, interestingly enough, for somebody like me who grew up Pentecostal, the Schofield system was really opposed to the idea, like the gifts of the Spirit and the supernatural stuff, that happened during the dispensation of the apostles. There's no space for that now. But in the Pentecostal world, there was a man named Dake who composed something called the Dake Annotated Study Bible. A lot of the old preachers in my tradition used it. Kind of took the Schofield ideas and made them more palatable for Pentecostals. So this kind of gets into the water and over time becomes a major prevailing voice in the church. I think it's important to mention, as a person who cares about tradition and history, this is not the prevailing view of any church tradition in history historically before. This has come about in the last 150 years or so. And it continues to be popularized for things like Left Behind. My friend Brian Zond and I watched Left Behind in the theater and live tweeted it. That was a good time. Another story for another day. But Left Behind, a lot of that. This is uh, Jack Van Empey, Tim LaHaye, John Hagee, et cetera, et cetera. And as I, even as I throw out some of that, I, I want to be cautious because please understand that throughout the history of the church, Christians have always differed on how they think about the end. I think there needs to be room for that in the kingdom of God. There's nothing in me that feels condescending or like I'm the enlightened one now because I think differently about these things. You know, it, it is okay to, to disagree about these things. It's okay to believe in, in stuff that's brazenly not in the Bible. We still love you just the same. <laughs> I'm being, that's a little tongue-in-cheek, y'all, come on. It's, it's really, there, there's, there's space for a lot of views about these things and still to be one in the body of Christ. So, you know, th that's the world I come from, so there's no, there's no hating, as it were, coming from me. However, uh, the scheme for me has changed, and it's become less and less about me going up and more about the kingdom coming down. The Lord's Prayer, as we call it, which is really the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray as the church, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the prayer that Christians have been praying for 2,000 years. That is the heart cry of the church. That's what we're waiting for, is for the king to come and for the kingdom to come. Is there even a shot that the prayer that Jesus prayed and gave us to pray is not going to be fulfilled? Of course this is going to happen. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul in Romans 8 talks about the earth groaning and sighing for the restoration that is to come. Why is the earth groaning and sighing if the entirety of God's plan for the world is to burn it down and start all over? What's there to long for if there's not a restoration that's coming? Isaiah prophesies about the day when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is the very heart, the very center of biblical hope. 
but it is not the vision that many of us have received because instead of a hopeful vision about a God who comes to redeem and restore the earth, there is this idea that, again, we are taken somewhere else while God comes to destroy everything. And, and, and again, this has tremendous implications for real life. I will tell you this. I had a lot of years as my faith began to mature where those ideas didn't set right with me the way that they used to. But I didn't know how to articulate something different. I just knew that didn't feel right anymore. It's interesting to me now, having traveled the world and um, connecting with lots of different parts of Christian tradition, how often I'll hear that story, that people will kind of be born into that thief-in-the-night kind of ethos. Larry Norman, I wish we'd all been ready. Y'all remember that one? There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come, and you've been left behind. I'm, I'm feeling a singing anointing today. There may be some singing <laughs> before this is all said and done. Um, but I hear a lot of Christians tell me that that intuitively didn't feel right to them. They didn't know how to say something else, which I think is interesting. I might be so bold as to suggest that the reason that doesn't set right for a lot of us is because the Holy Spirit that inspired these scriptures is at work inside of you. And there's a reason why some of the contours of that story don't feel right. Don't know how to name it. This doesn't feel right. Sometimes to me it felt like Here's this wonderful story I know about how the God who raised up Israel out of Egypt then raised Jesus of Nazareth up from the dead, the cross, the resurrection. Here's this beautiful story. And it felt like my end times theology was something that got tacked on from another place. You know what I'm saying? Like a pin the tail on the donkey kind of ending. Like there's, there's whole, And then there's this other thing. And I understood Jesus uh, that was coming in to be very different from the Jesus who came before. He's kind of like Dirty Harry. You know, before he comes to sacrifice his life, but then he comes back, and now he's taking no prisoners. And, you know, there's, we'll get more into that in a few moments. Revelation does talk about judgment, to be sure. I don't believe that God can make the world right without judgment and without justice. But I would contend that it's problematic that if we think that the Jesus who came and died for us, bled for us, was risen from the dead, comes back, and he's someone else entirely, when he ascends, that's what the angels say. Don't be afraid, disciples. This same Jesus is going to come again. Uh, of course, it the Revelation talks about how out of his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. There is judgment. But keep in mind, Revelation speaks these things in highly symbolic language. That's not an unfaithful way to read it. Uh, in the same way that, you know, in Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not going around going, bah, and he's not going to have a literal sword coming out of his mouth that's thrashing. What does it mean to say, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations? That God will judge the creation the same way he started it. The one who spoke creation to existence will now call all things into account by his word. There is judgment but that is not the same thing as saying that Jesus who rejected the sword of Caesar in the first century and told Peter to put it away now will prevail because he has a bigger sword and bigger guns than anybody else. Paul's theology, man, I'm starting to feel real worked up. I can tell I'm going to get sweaty before this is over. Paul's theology is that God conquers the powers of evil and death through the cross, through the cross. According to the author of Hebrews, it is in the death of Jesus that Jesus, when he descends into the lower parts of the earth, uh, will, will make captivity captive. This all happens through the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's not that the cross and resurrection didn't work, didn't pan out. So then, oh, plan B, since that didn't work, now we're going to have to try a whole different strategy. 
The, the cross and resurrection is how God conquers in the end as well. I just I had this memory earlier this morning. I hadn't thought about this in so long. But when I started to see some of these things differently, and did I say this part already? I don't think I did. I was 23, I think, and I just started at seminary. I didn't tell the story in the service yet, have I? My head's really engaged with the content right now. The, uh, I went to the same seminary where our friend Chris Green now teaches. He, he didn't then, but uh, a man named Dr. Robbie Waddell taught a course on Revelation. And after years of keeping these texts at bay and thinking I just must not be smart enough to understand them, for the first time, I had the opportunity to encounter these texts without some of the baggage of the systems I had before, and it blew my mind. Dr. Waddell is a dear friend of mine. He teaches at Southeastern, the Assemblies of God School now. In fact, I spoke for him and them a few months ago. Wonderful man. But at the time, it was so hopeful. It was so encouraging. I liked it so much better. But I thought, if I'm wrong about this, I am going to hell and I was really scared that I was wrong about all of it. And I was scared to leave behind any of those systems. Why well, I'm so sympathetic to anybody else, because I, I was clinging on to stuff for, for dear life. But I remember a day, I was flying somewhere to speak. I was out doing that kind of thing even then. And I was reading a little book. Richard Bauckham, New Testament scholar, has this uh, wonderful commentary on Revelation. just called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. And I was a couple chapters in, and as it was describing Jesus in Revelation... I was so overcome with the beauty of Jesus and so overcome by the beauty of that text that I just, I started weeping. I remember, I was, I mean, literally weeping on this plane for the beauty of Jesus presented in Revelation. And ironically enough, for a book that has so much worship in it, I think that's the first time I've ever had an image of Jesus in, Re in Revelation that made me want to worship. And I think that was the moment where I decided, you know what, I don't think I'm being led astray here. <laughs> if it causes me to love Jesus more, and worship him more fervently, I think this is more good than bad, apparently. And that's where some of the, the, the corners started to turn for me. But I think, again, there's an intuitive sense that that story that some of us have been handed doesn't feel right. I find in my own dreams, uh, I so often, I would say roughly half of my dreams these days, has been for years, go back to the Church of God State campground where I grew up. My grandparents were ministers. My grandpa died when I was young. My grandmother had a little house there. And it was on that campground that I went to youth camp. I had my first kiss. I had my first experience of the Holy Ghost. I'm not even sure what the order of those things are now. But all of it happened on that campground. I go to my grandmother's house, and we'd watch The Price is Right, and she'd make tang and talk about Jesus, and we'd eat cornbread. Your grandmother made tang too, I see. Wonderful times, right? And, and literally half of my dreams are set on that Church of God campground, remembering those people and those places, I mean, there, there was such a significant part of my past. And I think the reason that comes up so much is that I want to be connected to that past. And yet somehow I really believe that that past is somehow connected to God's future. That the one who created the earth and sustained the earth, that he wants to restore that. That that story is supposed to come together as one. That the time will come when I'll be reunited with those people. Perhaps to experience even those places in a different way. Because keep in mind the vision in Revelation is that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. No distinction between them. No barrier between them. In the Jewish mind, heaven is not a far-off place. Heaven, or the heavens, includes the earth and the sky all around you, literally the air that you breathe. So heaven, in the Old Testament, is the place from which the glory of God originates, but it does not end there. And the vision you have in Revelation 21 is that now it's complete. The glory of God that starts in heaven is now flowing into this new earth, this restored, renewed creation, and there's no distinction between them. 
Isn't that beautiful? It's, it's all seamless now. So instead of heaven being this far off distant place, it's more like it's another dimension. It's another reality that's now collapsed into this one. Where, where the rule of God now, again, Isaiah's prophecy, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. This, this, this is the prophecy. This is the kind of thing that we read about over and over again throughout the text and the story. This is the God, the same story that began in Genesis 1 through 3, when God creates the world in love and in hope. We rebel, we fall. This is the ending of that same story. It's not a whole different story. This is God completing. This is God bringing all of that back around. There's a kind of symmetry to this that's very, very beautiful. I think it's important that we get this. This is an important distinction, I think. That while Revelation 21 talks about the old things passing away, the old world passing away, that is not the same thing as God saying that he burns it down and starts all over. There is a purifying, refining fire. But it's interesting how there's such a parallel, I think, between what John does here in Revelation 21 and what the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 5. I mean, look, compare these later. They really are parallel texts. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Paul, of course, is describing what happens when people come to life in Christ Jesus, when we place saving faith in Jesus. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. Now, when you became a Christian, track with me here for just a second. You did not the next morning wake up and have new skin on, right? Like you were in the same clothes, you were in the same house, you drove the same car. You were you, but you were a very different you. You were the same in some ways, but very different. It didn't mean that everything about who you were and your history before was completely eradicated. This was a transformed new you. And that's the same thing that we have described here in Revelation. It's not that God entirely does away with the earth that was, but it's transformed. It's transfigured the way Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's the same raw elements. Keep in mind that Christian hope is always about the hope of the resurrection that's coming. The same thing that happened to Jesus when God raised him from the dead will one day happen to all of us who are in Christ. We will be resurrected. So God will take what remains of these bodies. I can't explain how that happens scientifically or chemically. I don't think God's going to have a problem gathering the elements of people who've been burned or drowned. And, you know, they, but, but that's the idea, right, is that God takes these bodies and he transforms them. That's what we have in Revelation 21. It's not God starting all over, but God taking what was already there before and transfiguring and transforming it. Is that making sense so far? If you're hearing this, and this sounds like, it made sense to like four people. If this sounds like it's a good ways away from, I'm going to take a trip on that good old gospel ship. Somebody sing it with me? I actually don't sing it with me. Sailing through the air, right? Now let me tell you something. I love that song. It is objectively a terrible song theologically. Doesn't mean I can't love it. I love hot dogs, and they're bad for me too. Good old gospel ship, sailing through the air, not the biblical narrative. Now, if you want, like, the basis of Christian hope, we have this for the screen, an old hymn of the church. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm telling you, I feel the Holy Ghost right now. And while I'm not a singer, I think I need to, I think I need to do this. It's going to be bad. Y'all have to help me. If you know this, we're just going to sing just a stanza. Will you help me? If you don't help me, I will stop singing and discipline you. <laughs> like, what, what's going to happen? 
help me with this so it doesn't get too awkward, all right? If you know it. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. Wow. This is my Father's world. Ha! Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king, let the heavens ring. God reigns, let the earth be glad. Praise Jesus. I'm going to be a singing evangelist now. This is a new calling for me. You can tell this isn't about ego, right? You can tell I have no ego when I'm up here. Do you hear the difference between good old gospel ship and that? I'm going to take a trip on the good old gospel ship, sail into the air, versus though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This earth that God began in hope and God one day will restore God will one day redeem. That is where the story is headed. Which, I don't know, depending on where you're coming from, uh, maybe you think this is a good idea, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. But I guess it begs the question, right? Well, if, the, if, you know, if that's where the emphasis lands in the text is you know, the vision is of the kingdom coming and the king coming down and all of that, where does the confusion come from? I don't have days to do this, but I will take a couple moments. I really think that most of the mischief that happens here, very innocently, by, again, people who love Jesus very dearly, comes down to a mistranslation of one verse that's fairly disastrous. 2 Thessalonians 4 is when it talks about that day when the, the, the trump of God will sound, and it describes this thing where those who are dead in Christ, along with those who remain, will be caught up together to meet him in the air. Now, that's a beautiful text. I love that text. I, I love to think about it and meditate on the text. It's wonderful. We will rise up to meet him with the air. That gets cobbled together, and here's where I'm doing a drive-by thing where I hate I can't go uh, more in depth, but I reference dispensational theology, which has, a, again, it's a chart and graph way of reading Revelation. Ironically, the way that often looks is that the things in Revelation that are literal are turned into symbols, and the symbols are taken literally. So the seven churches in Revelation are not seven real churches in Asia. They are seven church ages. And when, John, uh, when Jesus says to John, come up here at the beginning of Revelation 1, that's representative of the church being caught up in rapture. So you, 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 put, you cobble these things together, and it becomes this whole system of belief where the weight is on us being snatched up or carried off somewhere else. The trouble with this is that Paul uses a very particular word when he describes this meeting in the air. It's a word that we have multiple other places in Scripture. And it always has the same connotation of when you come out to meet someone, and then you usher them back in. Uh, it's an image that was often used in the Roman world for when a conquering hero would come back from a battle, people would meet him at the gates of the city, and then they would have a parade, a processional, to welcome him in together. In Matthew 25, Jesus used this same word to describe those, the bridesmaid, who will go out to meet the bridegroom and accompany him to the feast. Now, the bridegroom does not then kidnap the bridesmaids and run off and take them somewhere else. They meet to go to recess to this feast. Or in Acts 28, 15, the Romans go out to meet Paul when he arrives in the city. They don't then go outside the city. It's the place of meeting. So the image that Paul uses in Thessalonians is not about us being carried off somewhere else. We meet the Lord in the air 
for the sake of this processional. Where now the, the, the glory of God is coming down. The kingdom is coming down. The, the, the Lord's prayer is being fulfilled. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all talking about the same thing. But because of this mistranslation of this one verse, we have all kinds of disastrous implications. And doing terrible on time as I usually do these days. There, there's so much more about that I'd like to be able to say. But, but I think if we see it through this lens, it does require us to rethink a lot. It really, really does. It really does. But how we think about Revelation, um, which incidentally I don't think always happens in a linear way. People ask me, well, what about the tribulation? I believe in tribulation, but here is my footnote on that, and I apologize for this. This is just a drive-by. But there was a cartoon I saw in a Christian magazine years ago that I really love where you showed a Christian, a first-century Christian in a Roman Colosseum who's about to be eaten by lions, and there's a little caption above his head that says, well, at least it's not the great tribulation. <laughs> you think about that. I will, I'm going to leave that right there. There is tribulation to be sure, but ultimately, I feel like so much mischief gets done by good people, again, in the name of this kind of theology, because it develops a, a, an approach within the church where it's like we're rock stars staying at the Holiday Inn for one night. And it's like, hey, I'm only going to be at the hotel for a few hours, so let's party down here, right? There's a good sense of like, there's no sense of um, the creation mattering. We don't care about what happens in the world because... This world is not my home. I'm just a stranger passing through. Thankfully, you don't have to believe the right things about the end of days to participate in them, but some folks are in for a terrible shock, I tell you that. When the new heaven and new earth is revealed to be one reality and it's all blended, it's like, but I thought this world was not my home. And then you have this renewed earth, this restored, made right. I hope folk aren't gonna be terribly disappointed. It, it would not matter to me if this was just about speculative end-time scenarios, right? I mean, like, again, everybody can hold their views. That's not a big deal. But the problem is, I feel like if you, if you mess up the end of the story, it so drastically affects how you live in the present. It affects everything. I believe that. What you believe about the end affects everything about how you live in the middle. So, uh, you know, so a lot of Christians are fatalistic, they are convinced that the only thing that is ahead is gloom and doom, and they almost cheer it on. They almost like it when bad things happen because they think that means it's closer for us being snatched away. I'm just asking you on the basis of what you know about the character of God, does that sound like Jesus to you? That you want things to get worse because it means hopefully you get snatched out of the mess. There's something deeply, deeply wrong with this from doing a lot of travel in the Middle East and having close friends who are Jews in Israel as well as Palestinian Christians, Arab Christians. I have seen where this theology played out in that part of the world, how destructive it really is. Because instead of praying for peace, working for peace, a lot of Christians are almost lobbying and campaigning for let's make the end happen. Because we see these not as people but as pawns in some kind of eschatological chess game for which, again, the only real win for us is getting taken out of the fray. It has disastrous implications for real life. But the larger thing really for me is this, and I think the thing that's most tragic. Paul says that we are citizens of heaven. I don't like to use the word colony or colonize very often because in Western culture that has a really bad context. But that is the idea, is that we right now are colonizing for the kingdom of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. 
We bring the kingdom wherever we go. Now, please hear me. I believe there are so many things about this world that are so broken and so distorted that they will not be made right until Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords appears and comes and makes it right. But in the meantime, there are these outposts for the kingdom of heaven. There is, there are these, there is this kingdom colony. There are these places, real places, in our own schools, in our own places of work, in our own communities, in our own families, where already the rule and reign of, king, of the kingdom is being made known in the present. The kingdom of heaven is already beginning to arrive on the earth. The task of the church is to spread the kingdom of God and the kingdom message as far as we possibly can, to establish the kingdom so that when the king does come, there are places already where he's welcome. Where his, that, that's so beautiful. I don't know if you got that. Where his rule and reign are welcome. We're welcoming you, Jesus. We're looking for that day. We're anticipating that day. Which means we become the kinds of people who are living in, in hope. Because we see the brokenness in the world. We see all that's wrong. And instead of just having this fatalistic, pessimistic, nihilistic, well, it's all going to burn anyway. Who cares? Not my problem. I'm just a stranger passing through. We see the world not for what it is but for what it yet can become. And it must become if God is the one who restores and redeems the creation. Forget calling it like it is. Any idiot can do that. We're not calling it like it is. We're calling it for what it could be, what it should be, what it must be. We're able to go into broken places where we see the ravages of sin, pain, evil, injustice, but we see it through the lens of people who know that there's a restoration coming who knows that there's a renewal coming, that we begin to speak into now, that we begin to live into now, and we begin to speak hope into. Is this making any sense to anybody whatsoever? I am trying so hard to land this plane, but I think there's something so powerful about this notion of being people who come into a broken world and see through hope and speak through the lens of hope. I know that in the faith movement that at times this got abused or trivialized and like, you know, speaking in hope becomes, or speaking in faith becomes this kind of like, hey, if you don't have a Rolex, speak it into existence, bam, you know, blab it and grab it, name it and claim it. Now, I'm not into any of that, of course, but I do think the basic idea there's, is, is really important and there is a kind of truth to that, that speaking in hope, seeing the world through hope rather than through the lens of despair, well, that makes all the difference in the world. How, for those of you who are believers, how many times in your life has it made the difference that some older or brother and sister saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself and didn't see you in accordance with your failures and mistakes, but saw you for what you could become? They saw hope. They saw a future and spoke that into you. I've got a friend in the church I was thinking about this weekend in his early 30s, and we, you know, we've been hanging out here and there, and we had these wonderful conversations. I had one a few weeks ago I keep thinking about where he was talking about just his life and his story and his journey. He's single, never been married, and he was talking about some of those things in terms of wondering why has that not happened yet and some things vocationally haven't happened the way that he thought they were gonna happen, but learning to come to see God and the glory of God and, 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 you know, in all these beautiful ways. But we had, this, we had this conversation. He was talking about how he had this experience about a year ago that was so transformative for him where coming from a place where he was, felt like he was just really struggling with his faith and, and struggling with addiction and struggling just to be obedient and struggling with these foundational things. That he went away to Colorado and he had a few days to hike where he's like really seeking the Lord and praying. And he said finally after a few days, God did speak to him more clearly than he's ever spoken before. And when God did speak, it made him angry, he said. And I'm like, what, what was it? Why did it make you angry? He said that when God spoke to him, 
clear as the day, the Holy Spirit said to him, I am proud of you. You are my obedient son. And he said he got defensive and mad because like, I am not your obedient son. Don't you see who I am? Don't you see the things that I'm wrestling with? I'm not your obedient son. Like arguing with the Lord about this. I got chills when I heard that story. I remember one of my mentors, Dr. Ricky Moore, is an Old Testament professor. One time I told him something I thought the Lord had said to me. I remember him saying, that sounds like something he would say. And I thought when I heard that, that sounds like something he would say. That's like the Lord. To look at us not for where we are and what we are, but, but to see the Christ in us, to see the spirit in us, the hope, the potential to speak into that, to speak hope. That's what Christians are called to do in the world. Not to tell everybody else that it's all going to hell in a handbasket and to say, who cares, it's all gonna burn, not my responsibility, last night on earth. But to see the world that's coming, to see through the lens of faith, to see through the lens of hope, and to really believe that, that's what, that that is what is just around the bend. And I will close with this, seriously. Martin Luther King, there's this quote I think about so often in this context where King said, it's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals today. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee, and if I might add, the new Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is what we have to do. That, my friends, is Christian hope. That is the way we're supposed to live. And that's why how we think about the end matters right here, right now. Stand with me, if you would. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.